We're going to be actually looking at the uh, complete chapter. We're not going to read all of it this morning because there's a lot there and uh, we could kind of get bogged down uh, with a lot of different things and some weird things and and stuff like that. But uh, we are hopefully going to get a sense of what's going on in Ezekiel chapter 1 as as we talk about, as we transition to uh, the last of our summer series uh, this summer. As we've been talking about who God is, uh, the attributes, the characteristics of God. We've talked about his goodness, his graciousness, uh, his greatness. And uh, over uh, the next three weeks, we're going to talk about uh, how God is glorious. And so we're going to be looking at this, that this morning. Bef- but before we get to uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, it was in, um, uh, in 1646, a, a group of theologians and, and scholars and, and lay people uh, met together uh, in England uh, at Westminster Abbey, actually, and began drafting a, um, a document that later became known as uh, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. Uh, the reason that they started working on this document was uh, this was during a time of trying to bring uh, greater conformity between the Church of England and the Church of Scotland. And so as these uh, thinkers and theologians and, and lay people uh, sat down and, and started talking about what does it mean to be a Christian, uh, what is faith all about, uh, they came up with a pretty, uh, actually a pretty brilliant way of talking about it. Is they asked 107 questions and answered them. These these questions are surprisingly simple and simplistic and, and straightforward. And um, what what's striking about uh, the document is you've probably heard the first question uh, that's that's asked in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it's uh, one that, uh, whether or not you've heard it asked in this context, we ask ourselves all the time, that is, what is the chief end of man they begin with? This is a question that we all ask, right? What, what, what is our purpose? What is our meaning? What is the end goal of our life? How do we know if we're living a good life? What is the chief end of my life? As they talked about it and everything, the answer they came up with is surprisingly simple. They said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, This uh, statement is uh, surprisingly similar to what uh, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus when he begins that letter uh, to them, encouraging them. Uh, He says, uh, in him, talking about Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been, been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that... So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul says that you and I have been predestined for a purpose in Christ Jesus. And the purpose that we have is that we will be praised to the glory of God. That we will, as the Westminster Catechism would say, glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the purpose that we have been created with. When God dreamt you up, when he thought of you, when he put you together, at the center of everything is a purpose to know him, enjoy him, and glorify him. Your life, whether you think it or not, is wrapped up in the pursuit of glory. But these do come across, though, as like zero-sum statements, right? That like either you believe all of it or you believe none of it. That it seems like you have to accept God 
in order to be about the purpose of glory, chasing glory in your own life, right? You're either for the glory of God or you're against it altogether. But we know the reality is that our world doesn't really work necessarily in zero-sum statements. There, the fact is, is that we, we don't like either-or thinking. That, that seems pretty immature to us. It, it, it seems pretty extreme to say you're either for this thing or you're against this thing. And so we actually operate most of the time in saying, you know what, glory sounds good. I just don't know if it's always God's glory that I need to be about. There are plenty of people that say, well, I'm about glory in my life. It's just maybe not God's. We see the subject of glory as being interchangeable. Even those of us that don't, don't deny this idea that we've been created to glorify God, we don't see that as the maybe ultimate all the time, the only thing to glorify. There are a lot of other good things in our life, in our world, that is good to glorify, good to lift up, good to praise. What's the problem if we glorify those as well? It seems kind of immature to us to say it's, it's God and it's only God. What about my family? What about my accomplishments? Aren't those good things for me to lift up, for me to glorify, for, for me to take pride in? The truth is, Scripture is actually, this is one of those instances where it is uncomfortably uncompromising. That as we look at Scripture all throughout, it comes back time and time again that there is one thing and one thing alone worth glory, and it's God. And if you're chasing after, if you're lifting up, if you're looking to glorify anything other than that, you are going after something that is not real glory. You're chasing after a shadow. As I've been thinking about this this week and looking at Ezekiel and other and just a ton of scripture that talks about glory, it's kind of hard to get away from it in, in scripture. It, it struck me as, I don't think that glory is something that most of us walk around day in and day out thinking about, that we think that we're obsessed with it. That we think that it's something that drives us. If, if I were to ask you, well, what, what does glory mean? What is glory? What does that look like? I think most of us would sit there for a while, and the people that I've asked did this, sat there, and they were like, I have no idea. It's not something that we give much thought to every day. And yet the truth is, our lives are fueled by the desire and the need to see glory, experience glory, and glorify something or someone. The reason we're in Ezekiel this morning is because I think Ezekiel's vision that he has of God does such a great job of showing us what real glory looks like. It gives us a picture of maybe how, for all of us, we can actually see "Mm, maybe my life is more about glorifying either God, myself, or something else than I thought it actually was. I told you we want to look at just a few uh, 
portions of Ezekiel chapter 1. It's, a, it, it, it's an amazing chapter to read. Go back at some point uh, today, this week, and, and read the entire thing. But as we kind of get into it, there in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it, it says that in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, you can do the math, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehochin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Nobody really is quite sure. It seems like scholars are a, a, a bit at odds about the actual timing of this. The, the point of, and the reason for reading this is giving us a context of, of where Ezekiel is at when this vision takes place, when the glory of God comes upon him. Israel is in the time of exile. They are in Babylon. This canal that uh, Ezekiel references is somewhere between Babylon and the Persian Gulf. It was in the land where Israel was established. There were Israelite settlements there when they had been pulled out of Israel by the Babylonians into exile. And so here's Ezekiel in a place of extreme power. It's evident to him every day what real glory in the world looks like. And he's reminded time and time again of how him and seemingly all his people and even his God have been overcome by the power of the Babylonians. As he goes on to explain what he sees there in verses 4 and 5, he says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. We jump down to verse 10, and it says, As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. We jump down to verses 13 through 14. It says, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Most of you are probably thinking right now, yeah, this sounds like a normal Sunday morning, right? He goes on there in verses 26 and 20, through 28, and he says, And above the expanse over their heads there was a likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, so was the appearance of brightness all around. None of that makes any sense, does it? But it sounds pretty incredible. It sounds like something that's like way too big. For us. This isn't something that we expect to come into contact with, is it? As we talk about the glory of God and the fact that God is glorious and what that really means, I, I think as we try to encapsulate and, and, and distill down and say, what is real glory? I think Ezekiel's vision shows us three essential aspects 
to anything that is going to ever claim to be real glory, it must entail. The first thing that we see in Ezekiel's vision, going back to verse 4, he says, he starts there, he says, as I looked. And that's all you have to read. As I looked. See, real glory is visible. Real glory can be seen. We're not going to talk a whole lot about this one this morning because um, I think uh, for the most part, from what I understand, Ed's going to be talking about this over the next couple of weeks. Uh, and so I don't want to like take away from his sermon. I don't want to preach his sermon. I don't want him to get up here and tell you what I said was wrong. And so as we start to talk about glory and the glory of God, it, it seems weird to start in a place to say it's visible because I, I don't know, for me at least, that seems like Well, it's the opposite of humility, right? It's uncomfortable for me to say real glory, the glory of God, is always visible. It's kind of like the idea of like, you know, if you don't post about it on social media, did it really happen? If other people don't get to see it, don't get to experience it, don't get to comment on it, Can we really say it's that spectacular, that amazing, that glorious? As uncomfortable as it might make me to say that real glory is is visible, this is the truth of our lives, though. This is why even for those of us that don't like to be in front of people, that don't like to necessarily be recognized, it still means a lot when we are given an award, doesn't it? It still means a lot when people recognize the good things that we do. Why? Because when we achieve, attain greatness to some reason, to some extent, we want people to know about that. We want people to see it. Why? Because glory is visible. I remember growing up in my room, I had, I had the most pitiful trophy shelf ever assembled. It was full of nothing but participation trophies and eighth grade swimming, uh, eighth place swimming ribbons. If you're ever doing something where the award is a ribbon, just know black is not the color you want. And yet there it all was. Because I had this grand idea that I would do amazing things in my life to where I could have this incredible trophy shelf. And people could come into my room and they could see the glory that I had obtained. It would be visible for him. I, I, I realized the truth of this ingrained in us uh, a few months ago as uh, our kids got done with their first ever sports season. And we were at a little like family get-together to give them. We had like paid for ourselves. It wasn't even from the league. For these like little t-ball trophies. And Wesley, being three years old, had no idea what was going on. But his face, when they pulled out that little trophy and the gold gleaming in the sunlight, his eyes just went as big as could be. And they called his name out, and he walked over with his hands out and his eyes just up. And it was like a scene from Indiana Jones when he finally like gets to the treasure. And, and, he, and he grabbed this thing, and he held it, and he looked at it. And, and there, in all of its just immaculate, gold-plated, plastic glory, he could not believe what he had achieved and obtained. And then he broke it. And there it sits on his dresser. See, true glory can't help 
but be seen. It's not that it chooses to be seen. It can't help but be seen. We see that time and time again in Scripture with God's glory. That there is no potential possibility to hide the glory of God because it's real glory. And glory has to be seen. It's just the way it is. It's the way it's made. But the second thing that we see in Ezekiel's vision here about glory, real glory, is real glory is heavy. The actual Old Testament, the Hebrew word used throughout the Old Testament to talk about glory is literally translated as heaviness. When it says the glory of God, it is literally saying, I've seen the heaviness of God. It has weight. It has importance. It is permanent. It is not moving or going anywhere. Just picture the, the, the land, the geography of the place that oftentimes these things are being written. It's primarily barren oases of, of, of sand. Where as the wind sweeps through, the sand flies everywhere and it changes the landscape. Day after day, week after week, month after month. Nothing seems settled. Nothing seems in place. Everything is shifting in the world around them. And imagine in a land like that what the weight of a rock can do. It is the one permanent thing. It is the one thing in a shifting landscape that has the weight to withstand the forces being applied against it. This is the picture of the glory of God. That there is a heaviness to it, a permanence. It is the one constant thing in a world that is constantly shifting. The things that Ezekiel sees here are are, are not by accident. Over and over again, he, he emphasizes the fact that he sees fire. That the, that the four creatures that, that come, and he sees that they have four faces, and the four faces are, are, are face of a man, of an ox, of a lion, and of an eagle. Those are, as, as most scholars have pointed out, and rightly so, those are the four ultimate beings in all of creation. When you look at birds, wild animals, domesticated animals, and they just... We know the place that humanity has in God's created order. He even talks about a throne, or at least what appears to be a throne. What Ezekiel sees over and over again is that all of the greatest things that you and I can come up with in all of creation are incorporated in the glory of God, and it even surpasses all of that. That the things that we can see as the ultimate authority, the things that we can see as the ultimate displays of power, are what God's glory overwhelms. That there is a heaviness, a weight of substantiality to the glory of God that we can't find in anything else. This idea that real glory is heavy is the exact reason why so many of us are constantly 
not just looking for meaning in our lives, but we are trying to grab onto something that we think is solid, something that we think will stand the test of time, something we think that we can pour our lives into, we can actually center our lives on. And in a world that is constantly shifting, that every day it seems like something is new, something is different, the opinions of everyone is, are, are changing, that we can say, I know what truth is. I know no matter which way the wind blows, what will be here tomorrow. That desire is evidence that you are obsessed with glory. That you are obsessed with truth. Because you feel like the world is always shifting. And so if you can find what matters and stick there, you will have found the heaviness that has been imprinted in you because you've been made to glorify God. The last thing that Ezekiel's uh, vision shows us is that real glory is complex. Just in the few verses that we read, and as you read through all of that chapter, over and over again, Ezekiel says, it had the appearance of, it's like this. It had the likeness of. It's hard to read this first chapter and not see Ezekiel struggling to find the right words of what he's seen. Actually, uh, one commentator I, I was reading said it's pretty apparent that it seems like uh, this account is kind of disjointed, that Ezekiel probably went back time and time again editing and clarifying and rewriting, trying to get right exactly what he had seen because what he had seen was too big to explain. You see, real glory, like real glory, requires analogy to explain it. Something that is truly glorious is so far beyond you and me that the only way we can begin to even describe it is to say, well, it's like this. But we even know as we set out to do that, we're not even getting anywhere close to what it's really like. It's exactly like trying to explain complex ideas to little kids. And when your little kids ask you, you know, about something that's beyond them, I mean, you get it, but obviously they don't. You say, well, it's like, and you start trying to explain it, and before you know it, it's like two hours later, and you're like, I don't know, just ask your mom. Um, a few weeks ago, we, we, had to, uh, we had to put our dog down, and um, he, uh, and so we were, we were driving in the car uh, the day after, and uh, the kids were talking uh, uh, about Bear and, and how they miss Bear, and they were, you know, saying things, and it was kind of making us cry, and um, Wesley kept saying, it's taken Bear a long time to be alive, and we were like, yeah, buddy, whatever that means, and so um, we, uh, we, we were saying those, we were kind of reminiscing about them and, and stuff, I, I, I said, you know, your mom used to say, guys, that uh, Bear was never going to die, that he was eternal, and Eden from the back seat goes, what's eternal?" De- and we were like, it's nothing. That's not a word. Uh, what, what's eternal? Uh, and so we like laughed about that. And so we started trying to explain to Eden what e- eternal, eternal means. 
and that idea and that it's bigger than just never dying and all these different things and got into a really weird, you know, discussion with her. As you read, though, Ezekiel's first chapter, his account, his vision, it reads like someone explaining the meaning of deternal to a child. It's like this, but it isn't because it's so much bigger. He says there in, in verses 26 through 28, is the likeness. I, I saw the likeness of a throne. It's like a throne. I, I, I mean, it has the power of that. It has the authority of that. But, but I don't know. It, it, it's bigger than that. It, it, it's well beyond that. I, I can't even begin to describe to you everything that this thing means. It's so much more than what I thought real power looks like. We see again in the letter to the Ephesians, as Paul is wrapping up that letter, praying for the Ephesians. He prays that they'll have power. He says that power that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And talking about God's love, Paul says, I don't know, it's like love. It's like the love and the pride you have for your children, but it's bigger than that. I mean, it, 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 as I begin to describe that and, and try to grab onto that idea, I can't even tell you guys how much bigger, how much better it is. This is exactly what Ezekiel is showing us over and over again in his vision that as he comes face to face with real glory in his life. We see that if it makes sense to you and me, if we get it, if we can explain it, if we, and if we know how to get it, then it really isn't that glorious. The things that make sense to us, that we look at and we say, that's what glory would look like. If I can achieve that, if I can obtain that, if I can put that on my mantelpiece, that will say to everyone how glorious, how great I am, my family is, my status is. If we can say those things, that simply, we're chasing after something that is not God's glory, it's our own glory. Why? Because it's simple enough for you and me to get, which means it's not complex enough for the glory of an infinite God. Just think about how finite we are. Just think about the fact that you and I, we have a brain. Sure, it's got millions, billions of neurological connections, and it's pretty impressive what our brains can do. But they say something like what? Like our brains can, we only use like 10% of our brains. And so if you, who's only using 10% of your brain, can understand it, can get it, it's not complex enough to be Truly, really glorious.
Real glory doesn't just incorporate one of these things. It has all of them together. And we see that the best that we can do in our own lives, trying to chase down glory for ourselves in some other way, about some other thing other than God, is we can maybe get one, maybe two, but to find all three, will we only do that when we come face to face with an infinite God? Find glory that is visible, that is meaningful, and that is complex enough can only come from the one who has created everything. What's amazing to me is that as we see this and as we come in, that our lives are so propelled by this need to find, to experience, and to know glory is that it actually leads Ezekiel to, I think it would be the last thing that you and I would expect it to lead it to. See, as Ezekiel gets closer and closer to the throne of God here in this chapter, he actually becomes less and less certain. The frequency at which he has to use the words likeness and appearance of just kicks up. And he goes into a frenzy of trying to explain everything that he's seen. And he says, a likeness of a throne, but maybe this isn't the ultimate seat of power. And then we see Ezekiel start to have the certainty of his life, of his views, of how the world he lives in works, the logic and the reasoning that he possesses, what real power is, his perception of things. Everything that Ezekiel has that he thinks he has a handle on that he can be certain of in this world begins to be reshaped by the glory standing in front of him. And at the unraveling of all of this, we see in verse 28 that all he can do is fall down. He says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Everything that Ezekiel thinks he knows is undone by the weight, the power, the meaning, the complexity of the glory that he's seen. We see the same thing actually happen in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, as Isaiah sees God, he says, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Everything that Isaiah thinks about himself, that he thinks about his people, that he thinks about the world around him, he says, I have no idea about it anymore because this is what is real. This is true glory. Everything I put hope in, everything I put stock in, everything that I'm confident about is undone by the glory that I see before me. John, in the book of Revelation, who knew Jesus, is so overwhelmed by the glory he sees Jesus in that he falls down as though dead, John says. You would think John would at least be certain that I know this guy and he knows me and we have a relationship. And yet the glory of Christ, risen and resurrected, is so incredible that John isn't even sure of his standing before him anymore. 
The unsettling thing about the glory of God is that when we come into true contact with it, is that real glory leaves you uncertain. Never would have, I never would have said, this is what it looks like to come face to face with God. And yet we see it over and over again. That these men who see God in all of his glory, it undoes all the certainty we have about everything else. You see, this is in stark opposition to the glory we chase after in our own lives. The glory you and I are after, the glory that is for ourselves, to glorify me, to glorify the, the things around me that I think build me up, that I can put in my trophy collection. That glory is all about certainty, isn't it? It's about knowing who I am and what I believe and that I have found meaning and permanence in a world that is always shifting. It's about the approval and the opinions of others and that they see me and they lift me up. They see what I've done and they are voices to cheer me on in my pursuit of my own glory. The glory that we chase after for ourselves is all about certainty because it's about achieving what I can and how much I can. And it leaves us in a place. See, the glory for ourselves leaves us in a place where we are at the center of the universe. At the height of the um, Civil War, uh, when uh, things were actually not looking uh, that good for uh, uh, the North, uh, a lady asked Abraham Lincoln, uh, asked him and said, uh, are, are you... Do you believe that God is on our side? Are you confident God is on your side? Abraham Lincoln responded and said, Madam, I am less concerned whether God is on our side than whether we are on his side. As we know, as we experience the true glory of God, it leaves us less certain that we are right. And leaves us hungry to experience real glory. And not the thing that we can come up with for ourselves. I was trying to think about like what this might actually look like. And, um, and I realized like I had actually experienced this um, uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, and uh, I, I, I called up... Um, I called her up and I said, can, Mardell, can I share uh, this story? I promise I won't talk about you like I talk about my kids. And she said, yeah, you, you can. Um, we were, we've been announcing for a while uh, that we were having baptisms and, and that th- this was an act of obedience and, and an amazing step to take in your relationship uh, with Jesus. And, um, and so uh, you kind of always have in mind like who you're talking to uh, when you're talking about that sort of thing. So you can imagine my surprise when I got an email one day uh, with the subject line of just a question mark. And it was, um, I opened it up and it was from Mardell. And Mardell said, I think I need to get baptized. I want to get baptized. 
And uh, if you don't know Mardell, Mardell's been in the church for a little while, right, Mardell? And uh, Mardell's not really the type of person you look at and you're like, oh, that person needs to get baptized. They really need Jesus. And so, so I was a little like, oh, this is surprising. So I, I uh, wrote back to her and I was like, I think we need to have a discussion, Mardell. And so uh, we, we sat down and uh, I said, so Mardell, uh, why do you want to get baptized? And she goes, I don't know. I was like, well, that's a start. Um, that's, that's not usually a thing. She, and, and she started explaining to me. She said, actually, this has been going on for a while. That Actually, last year when you guys were talking about baptism, I felt like God was saying I needed to do it. And I wasn't sure what that meant, and so I didn't do it. But then when you guys started talking about it again this year, I felt God saying that again, that you need to do this. And when you talked about it being... An act of obedience, it just, I, 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 get, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know why God wants me to do it. And so we sat and we talked for a while. And I was like, and as we talked, I was like, you know what? I think this is God telling you to do this. And so let's do it. I think this is what it looks like to be chasing after the glory of God rather than all the other stuff we can be chasing after. That there comes places and times that we say, I'm not certain. I'm not certain why I would do this. This doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. I, I feel like things are fine. But I am certain that it's what God wants me to do. It's what God wants I talked with her and I told her that I, 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 was, I, I was impressed. And we talked afterwards about it too. And how impressed I was that she and Bob were both willing to do this thing because of all the things that it could mean, the, the, the misunderstandings that people could have, that when someone like Mardell Hoensey, who is on church council, goes down to get baptized, I know what goes through people's minds. Oh my goodness, Mardell went off the rails somewhere. <laughs> I heard it was gambling. I don't know. Like, I just... All of these things that you can fear of what people might think and what they might do and, and how it might look. And yet none of that matters. Why? Because the things we put our hope in, the things we trust in, the things we see as certain in our life in light of the glory of God become uncertain. The glory of God breaks down everything that we take certainty in. Primarily ourselves. We think we have it figured out. The glory of God shows us you don't. You think you are the thing that is unmovable in a shifting landscape. You're just a bigger clump of sand that's going to break apart at some point. That's what the glory of God shows us. The glory of God shows us that we need Jesus and nothing else will do. And this is why it's good. It's good to experience. It's needed that we experience the glory of God so that he will break down the things you and I take certainty in of how much we think we have it figured out, of how much we think we are right, of how much we are relying on ourselves and the opinions of those around us to tell us what is what, the right way, to tell us what is true north, when in reality, the real glory can only be found in Christ. 
You see, in light of God's glory, it leaves everything else uncertain, and yet at the same time, there is a clarity that comes from the uncertainty that we find in the glory of God. A clarity that all of these other things do not need to be listened to. They do not need to be taken into account. Why? Because it doesn't matter if God's on our side. It matters if we're on his side. But man, it sucks to have that stuff torn down. Because we've built up so much around it. We've built lives, communities, churches, nations, entire worldviews on the certainty that we have of ourselves, of our reason, our logic, and the glory we've told ourselves that we've achieved. And the glory of God comes along and in an instant we realize, man, that stuff doesn't matter at all because you know what? The thing God's sitting on, it's like a throne, but it's bigger. It's greater. It is more powerful than anything we've ever come up with. One good indication of whether we're chasing our own glory or God's is whether or not we've asked ourselves, just any time recently, am I actually on God's side? Not, is he on my side? The reason, though, these things need to be torn down in our life by the glory of God is because of what it brings. I was talking with a friend uh, about this this week, and uh, he, he made the point to me. I, I never thought of this, and, and so I can't take credit for it. Um, but he won't cr- want credit either, and it's about God's glory, so I'm not going to give him credit. And so when we go through the painful experience of seeing God's glory and understanding how far we are from that, that's what Isaiah had to Say, woe is me, a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And we are so far from God when we thought we were the people of God. Everything that Isaiah knew is torn down, and yet what we see with both him and Ezekiel and so many others is that when we experience the weight and the power of God's glory and it's torn everything down, then it allows a refreshment of God's Spirit to come upon us. Isaiah cries out and says, Well, I am a man of unclean lips. And we're told that an angel picks up a coal from the burning altar and he comes and he touches Isaiah's lips, which couldn't have felt that good. And yet then it says, You now are cleansed. Ezekiel, in the same way, is given a scroll to eat and he says he eats it. And it's, it's some hard words from God. And yet Ezekiel says, It tasted like honey in my stomach. I'm not sure if you all feel the same way I do. Maybe it's just the fact that I have three kids. But I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say, I think it's fair to say that at this point in life, at this point in time, in the times that we live in, in the context of everything that's going on around us, we are all tired. We are all upset. We're frustrated. We feel misunderstood. 
flat out angry. That we are certain we are right and we are bewildered. No one else gets it. I don't know if this explains you. I think it does. I think it explains most of us. I think it explains the world we live in today. Why do we feel this way? I think it's because we have been so certain of who we are and what we think and what we've been chasing after. And the thing we need more than anything else is to experience and see and know and to come into contact with the real, true glory of God. And to realize that because of that, we do not have to worry about what others think. We don't have to worry about our achievements. We don't have to worry about how everything is shifting around us. And it seems like there's nothing secure. There's nothing settled. Why? Because we have found the one thing in all of creation. That is visible, weighty, and complex enough to be true glory. And in finding that, that we can be refreshed in our spirit, in our soul, in our thinking, in our interactions, that we can let go of the weight of chasing our own glory and just experience the glory of God. This is why we need God's glory. We may walk around each and every day thinking, what does glory have to do for me? What Ezekiel experienced, that's too big for every day. I can't start my day off this way. I hit the snooze button eight times. This sounds at least like 30 minutes of prayer. But we need God's glory in our life so that we can be refreshed. So that we can be cleansed and so that we can be about the one thing that truly matters. That is glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is, um, it is no joke that our lives are complex, that they are multifaceted, that they are, it, it, is, it seems impossible each and every day to truly move through, work through all of the different things that are presented towards us, the different decisions we have to make. There, Father, I, there is just nothing easy in life right now. And I think for all of us, I, 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 can, I think I can safely say we are tired, we are worn out, we are frustrated. And Lord, as Ezekiel's vision shows us, though, in that moment, that is exactly why we need your glory. That we need to understand that it is you and you alone that are glorious. That it, that it is you that has the weight in the meaning and the purpose that we are looking for. It is you who is beyond explanation. Father, help us. Would your spirit come and not just simply show us your glory, but show us how we have taken certainty in things that are so uncertain. Would we be touched by your cleansing presence to recognize that our identity is not found in the opinions of others, is not found in our achievements, is not found in the trophies and accolades that we can possess. 
but is found in the fact that you are constantly chasing us down and wanting to reveal who you are and the depth and the width and the breadth of your love for us. Father, would you help us to let go of the things we are certain about in our lives and in the clarity of that, grab hold of the certainty of Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.